0: Welcome to Syntalk. The Syntalkers around the table today discuss the not so obvious. We'll think about unexpected, non-obvious outcomes in various domains and what leads to them. Why is it not always trivial to prove an obviously false statement to be false? How much of obviousness is purely syntax dependent? Do we always parse and why? What are the traits of most fraudulent proofs? What is the difference between justification, verification and proof? Can the underlying axioms of any specific human reasoning be exhaustively enumerated? Is vagueness a feature of language or of thought itself? Is proof a kind of consensus and will the notion of true and truth itself soften up in the future? We are pleased and privileged to have three syn-talkers with us here today. Dr. Tanmay Bhattacharya, he teaches linguistics in University of Delhi. He specializes in Chomsky syntax and also works in many other areas, both in linguistics and outside. Professor Meena Mahajan, she is a professor of computer science at IMSA in Chennai. Her main research area is complexity theory, and she also loves solving combinatorial puzzles. And Dr. Kit Patrick, he teaches philosophy at Azim Premji University in Bangalore. He studies how scientists and other experts reason starting from very imperfect positions. So, um, you know, why don't we set the ball rolling with you? Um, maybe by getting your instinct, um, or not even instinct, your take on it in a somewhat rigorous way, of how you and your colleagues around the world uh, distinguish between true and false. Like, how do you, How do, of course, one knows what true is, what false is. Um, but, you know, this whole business of proving something um what exactly has has it come to mean to you over the years? Uh, because you know you've you've done this for a while. What's what, what's the texture like?
1: Okay, so you started off saying that of course we all know what is true and what is false, and that may not be completely true. Hmm. But I have the fortune to work in an area which is mathematical in nature. Where right. True is well defined, and false <laughs> is well defined, and there are statements which are false, mathematical statements which are false, and we would like to rigorously prove that they are false. So really, this comes down to a question of what do what would we consider an adequate proof of uh, uh, that that a statement is true or that a statement is false. But the
0: notion of falseness itself, the notion of something being false, is the same as the way we think of it in common language, right? Yes. So that's that's yes. totally cool. Yes. So the
1: mathematical uh, that notion has the notion same meaning. So. Matches the common sense notion, but I am aware that there are paradoxes when you just try to pick up something from common language and formulate true or false with it, you could run up against uh, statements which are evidently neither true nor false. Uh-huh. And we are not dealing with uh, such statements in in the realm that I work in. Uh-huh. So here statements are clearly either true or false. And,
0: and this whole enterprise or whatever happens in proof theory or even otherwise what proofs do is really establishing whether a statement is true or a statement, an equation or whatever is true. Right? Yes. So it's, yes. That's straightforward. So what's the problem with that? The problem
1: with that is uh, not interpreting truth or falseness, but proving truth or falseness. So we may understand what is true or what is not true, but how do we demonstrate the truth of a statement in a way that would be evident and clear to somebody who perhaps does not have the same level of understanding as we do?
0: And if we think of proofs themselves as a certain kind of entity or object of study, we do, uh, we do. and that's that's what you and your colleagues do. Yes, yes. Um, then what what characteristics do do genuine proofs have? Um, are they are they necessarily short and crisp and elegant? Are they necessarily long winded? I mean, what do good proofs maybe we strike out the were so actually good.
1: there is a there is a notion I forget whom it is originally attributed to that somewhere there is the book. The Book of Proofs. I think that's
0: Paul Eddish, right? Is Edish? Okay, yeah. I was not yeah. completely sure yeah. of this. Yeah.
1: So for a mathematical statement, which is true, there is the ideal proof. And that ideal proof is short and crisp and elegant and uh, really is accessible and understandable, not necessarily to the expert, but also to somebody with a passing knowledge of the field. And of course, we would love to find proofs from the book. But uh, there are lots of problems for which we would be happy to find some proof. we we don't have any proof whatsoever. So the first step would be to find a proof and then next would be to refine it until we eventually get to the best possible proof. So the notion of finding a very good proof is, of course, this is a worthwhile goal, but we are not always tackling this question.
0: So there are good proofs and not so good proofs, there are alternative proofs, some look more elegant, some look less elegant, that's kind of what you're saying. More
1: elegant, less elegant would be one characteristic of a, a distinguishing feature between a good and not so good proof. A long proof versus a short proof would be another distinguishing feature. Maybe a third feature would be a complex proof and a simple proof. This is not necessarily the same as elegant and non-elegant, but complex and simple in terms of what it demands from the person who is checking the proof.
0: You mean in the Kalmogorov sense? or uh, Not necessarily. In the not necessarily. No.
1: Right. So this is, my, my viewpoint is very computational. Mm-hmm. So from a computational viewpoint, a proof is very complex if uh, not it necessarily more the person memory, who is more running time. not, yeah, not the person who is proving the theorem, but the person who is checking that the proof is correct. How much uh, time or space does that person have to put in? How complicated is it to check that this proof is correct? And if that is very complicated, then this is a complicated proof. If that is simple, then this is a simple proof.
0: So you're already going into the area of verification, you know. Exactly. Right. So where... so that
1: is one way in which I can classify proofs by. Uh, so, like I said, uh, short proofs, long proofs, is nothing to do with verification. But verification is definitely ease of verification is one metric by which I could classify proofs as simple or not simple.
0: And is verifying always shorter than proving? Is verification always more economical uh, than proving?
1: Is uh, so? Yeah. So shorter is not the right word I would use there. But economical, maybe I can. So is verification easier than? Proving?
0: Yes, easier. In
1: easier in whatever metric, again. I wouldn't say it is always easier, but it is not likely ever to be harder. So it requires some creativity and ingenuity to come up with a proof in the first place. It -hmm. does not necessarily require creativity to check a proof line by line to check that whatever inferences have been used in the proof are indeed valid inferences. Now, there are uh, several situations where the ingenuity required to even come up with the proof in the first place is not really significant. Somebody who is uh, able to verify a proof is probably also able to come up with a proof. So there are, there are questions where uh, ingenuity is not a big deal, but there are lots of questions where really that, uh, that ingenuity we are not able to put our fingers on. So there's a whole bunch of theorems, statements that we know are true and we do not know how to easily prove them. But if a proof were given, we would know how to verify this.
0: And before you get to proving something or before you find a proof or a theorem or a whatever, uh, are you able to say beforehand whether the correct proof would be how long or short it would be? Like, do you know? I, I think one is trying to get to the traits of the proof, right? Are you able to say beforehand what the right proof is likely to be like? Uh,
1: so, so maybe here I can uh, give an example. So this is an example of about uh, matchings in, in graphs. So th- it comes from the combinatorial puzzles that I mentioned. So you have these uh, two sets of objects which you want to pair up and there are some pairings which are allowed and some pairings which are not allowed. And you uh, the, the statement being made is that in this setting, it is possible to pair up everybody. What would be a proof of this statement? A proof would be an actual pairing. And to check that this proof is valid all one would need to check is that all the pairings in which are given are actually allowed in the instance. This is an obvious proof of a statement which is true. But maybe I give you a different set of objects and different set of allowed pairings and now the statement is, in this collection, there is no way of pairing up everybody. There is, let's say you want to form teams of two and you can only put friends together in a team and so, so some people will not be willing to be paired up with each other. And the the claim is that it is impossible to pair up everybody. What would be a proof of this? Now, the statement is easy to make. It is not obvious a priori what would constitute a valid proof of this. Mm. So, a a very well-known example of a valid proof in such a situation is a proof which comes from Hall's theorem in mathematics. Mm. So, uh, let's say I had 50 boys and 50 girls who have to be paired up, but not everybody is willing to be paired up with everybody else. And the theorem is that it's impossible to pair them. Mm-hmm. A proof of this would, for instance, could, for instance, be the following. I pull out 23 boys and I say, let's pick out all the girls who are willing to be paired up with any one of these 23 boys. And having pulled out all those girls, I it turns out I get only 20 such girls. Right. Well, then it's impossible to pair all the boys so with. So even
0: them. one non-match is 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 a proof that, you know,
1: No, but I I have not shown that there is a non-match. The proof actually has been a, a smaller set of boys for whom the set of allowable partners is even smaller. Right. And that is proving that there is no overall matching. Right. Now, when you look at the original statement that you're trying to prove, it is not at all obvious that the proof that there is no matching would take this form. Hmm. But this is a mathematical theorem and it allows us to construct proofs of this form. So the question about a priori, would we know what form the proof would take? Really, this is definitely not the case and it depends on what mathematics has gone into establishing the structure of uh, uh, what establishes the truth. And we're
0: getting into the realm of proof systems in a way, right? Like what kinds of systems do you use for Anyway, maybe we'll get back to that. So Tanmay, we jump to you, right? Now, obviously, theorems, equations are different beasts compared to language, but language also is is, is a very unique kind of entity, isn't it? Because of its uh, the fact that it lives, but it also has natural constraints. Now, what, what, what does this question of obvious, non-obvious expectations, counterintuitive terms, what does it mean to you as a linguist? And maybe we'll start somewhere and we'll explore that further.
2: Yeah, let me talk about the same thing that Meena just uh, finished talking about. Overall, I think it is slightly more deterministic in at least the kind of equivalent proof that we construct vis-a-vis derivation of a sentence. I'm a syntactician, I talk about a sentence at a time. Um, So first of all, this question about true or false, it's not um, deterministic at all in uh, grammar. Because there is a question of... What
0: would be the equivalent notion of true? Something that has uh, Ungrammatical, grammatical. Yeah. But
2: then it is too simplistic uh, uh, worldview because there are issues of judgments. So there is this question of unacceptability, ungrammaticality.
0: And you would differentiate between the two. Yes.
2: uh, Grammaticality, ungrammaticality is a theoretical notion. According to the grammarian, who is a theoretician, this should be grammatical and this should be ungrammatical. But uh, acceptability, unacceptability is a question of judgment. And the judgment could be for various reasons. There are many reasons we are not interested in as like scientists uh, working within linguistics. We are not interested in social reasons, for example. There could be social reasons, regional reasons, language, background reasons, etc. Yeah. So we don't take that into consideration. Um, but there are other disciplines, sub-disciplines within linguistics that do. But in our discipline in syntax and let's say semantics, we would consider something unacceptable if it is difficult to parse. So there's a question of um, so It needs uh, the, too it, much processing time. Too much processing in the sense of uh, the level of embeddings. I can come to that a little later. First, sure. Let me address the broad issues. So there's not, nothing like true and false. There is grammatical and ungrammatical. But there are e- even in the diacritics that we use for uh, considering something as grammatical is there is no diacritic at all. For ungrammatical there's a star, asterisk. Hmm. Mm. But we can also have two asterisks or Mm. we can have one question mark or two question mark. Mm. So this is acceptable, but not really grammatical. This is grammatical, but not really acceptable. So there are various gradations of judgments. And as a scientist, again, I'm staying within the paradigm of science. Our job is to construct a theory which will be able to address this gradation of judgments as well. Not just true and false. That will be too easy so you have to construct a theory which will be able to uh, really derive this fact that it is possible for this kind of constructions to be not completely unacceptable or completely ungrammatical so i think the nature of proof is also therefore uh, different so this uh, one thing that mina said about verification of a, a proof that doesn't exist at all but uh, the economy consideration which you uh, pointed out does work because um, there is a famous discussion about ten years ago when this uh, n- new theory minimalism came into the picture about uh, economy playing a far greater role than it did before, um, and economy has different measures. Like there's you a, mean
0: you mean acronyms and things like that. No, or?
2: economy in the sense of steps of derivations. Right, when you derive a sentence from, a, let's say, underlying form to the surface from the spoken form. There are certain steps. So there's this question of least effort. Mm. And the discussion was, is least effort a mere counting of steps, mm. mere counting of derivational steps, or is it something else? How do you define your economy measures? And more or less, the consensus was that least effort is something, uh, something different. Uh, let me give you an example. Mm, this is an example about uh, ambiguous sentence, a sentence having more than one meaning. Uh, take an example like uh, birds that fly instinctively swim. Now you can, I read it in one way, but you can also read it another way. Birds that fly instinctively swim. These two have different meanings. So there are two meanings of this.
0: But when you write them down, you would do different punctuations. No, right? there is
2: no, no punctuation here. Yeah, Because no the pause uh, yeah. doesn't require a po- comma here. And anyway, the writing convention is not a really linguistically defined. Right. Orthography is not really linguistically defined. Uh, um, dependent. So yeah. orthography is quite an independent thing which changes uh, little and it's not determined by native speakers' uh, intuitions. But in this sentence, you have two meanings. Uh, instinctively flying birds swim or um, birds that fly instinctively swim. Yeah. But interestingly, if you move this adverb instinctively in the front of the sentence, so if you say instinctively birds that fly swim, then you have you you get only one meaning. Yeah. One meaning is crossed out. Yeah. So then the issue is why this is so. As a linguist, as a science uh, scientist of language, I need to construct a theory which will be able to explain this.
0: But there are two very different messages. No, I mean just moving the word yeah. instinctively up front. That's that's in fact that's a third thing. Uh, no, that is
2: that that is one thing versus the instinctively staying within the sentence. Mm. Uh, I don't have to get into details but the thing is that uh, one of the ancient things that which we still stick to that is ancient grammarians also did this when you said when you look at a sentence what is the first cut that you do first cut division if you if you if a child is asked to divide a sentence what is the first cut that people will do and usually it has been that after the subject so there's the subject and predicate hmm. the subject and the predicate talks about the subject that's the first cut so here if you do that you're able to do that then you see the structures are very different. When you mm. move instinctively in front of the sentence, in order t- for it to apply to or have scope over, the technical term is to have scope Scul- over, right. to have scope over the verb, there are two verbs here, fly yeah. and swim. Yeah. To have scope over fly, it has to do a deeper search because yeah. that fly is part of the subject. Yeah. Words that fly, yeah. that is one part of the sentence, yeah. the other part is actually the spine of the claws in a way yeah. so instinctively can have easily scope over swim, although linearly it is farther so birds that fly instinctively birds that fly swim, fly is nearer so if you see linear distance they instinctively should apply to fly, but then native speakers, you asked 100 speakers 100 out of 100 will say that in this example where instinctively is at the beginning of the sentence, it applies not to fly, but to swim Then the question is, what is a native speaker doing? Why is he doing it like this? And the answer is that it is a deeper search to apply the adverb instinctively to fly. It is much easier search to apply it to swim. It's like uh, somebody said it's like a question of deeper pocket. Mm. If you want to get some change out of your pocket, Mm. you have too many pockets, then it's very difficult to go to the bottom pocket. Mm. But you have one straight pocket, you can get your hand into it and get your change out. So the search time, memory time, search time, everything is easier if you stick to the main predicate part of the clause. But here you know, with uh, birds, that is the modifier of the birds, um, birds that fly, it becomes more complicated. So, and this has been seen, um, you know, constructions, uh, across constructions uh, for uh, all languages it has been seen, not just example, other examples. And children so, just so, acquire
0: it at uh, age two. So, so sociolinguistically or whatever, right? I think you use the sentence and three of us sitting here listen to you. And I don't know whether we share the exact same meaning when you pronounce it a certain way and all that. So how does it work? Because the, they have different meanings and there are all these semi somewhat ambiguous sentences floating around. So that ambiguity remains, right? Mm. That ambiguity remains mm. in and there's no way of uh, there's no way of that changing in the long run. How does that mm. change in the long run? No, there's no question of changing it's like this is the fact of
2: language mm. and this is the fact we take from native speakers I'll give you another very um, common example I think because at least in one dialect of uh, English you can what is called contract uh, a verb and an infinitive like to let's say I want to go I want to speak you can say I wanna speak yeah Okay. or you can I'm going to go I'm gonna go yeah. so there are a lot of people who are following up this accent yeah. uh, for whatever social reasons. Uh, but uh, no native speaker of that dialect of English would ever contract want and to if your sentence was, I want this book to win the prize. And then you say, this book, I want to win. So in this form, this book, I want to uh, win the prize. Want and to is sitting next to it. It's very immensely possible contract to contract yeah. it but no native speaker will contract it and here I'm talking about a form of spoken language I'm not talking about some written English this is uh, let's say American majorly American uh, form of English so where, how do
0: these come to be tanmoy
2: well this is uh, then if you look at the again the structure of the sentence in this sentence I want this book to win the prize there is this book between want and to so when you move that this book away you say this book I want to win Although it is, there is nothing, there is air between yeah. one and two. But underlyingly, there is a trace of that phrase, this book. So you can't contract it. And this is not taught in the schools. Yeah, this, but somehow
0: uh, we share it. We
2: share it and you don't uh, like overlap. There is no overlap of judgment. Everybody shares it. The, yeah. So there are certain cases where there is 100% sort of agreement arising out of the native speakers. But there are you're right, there are other areas where uh, there is a variation of judgment. And those are more difficult, and we can talk about them later. But at this point, I wanted yeah. to just say that uh, the notion of economy in uh, syntax is quite different from what Meena said uh, about in mathematics. So it, there is no verifier as such. But yeah. verification but is in, a in process. But in a sense, the
0: verif- verification process is that process of sense making and meaning making, you know, in yeah. a way. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you can make sense of it, then you kind of verified it to be appropriate, mm. if not true. Um, we jump to you, Kit. Um, your world, you've thought about reasoning a little bit over the years. Um, as it is, just thinking of mathematical proofs and language. Language is slightly more messy. Um, Mina manages to keep her world tidy <laughs> somewhat. Um, how does reasoning work? Is it is Does it have an algorithmic kind of form? Does it go from one step to another nice and neat? Um, what's What's your
3: take on it? How does reasoning work? Start with easy questions. Yes, start with easy questions.
0: Yeah, start with easy <laughs> questions.
3: Easiest one. So... I mean, we've got we've got a few models up in the air I'll pick one of them and then i'll I wanna sure say it's probably not algorithmic in a certain sense. I want to pick the one that's gonna connect it to some of the stuff you two guys have said so sort of it's inference to the best explanation it's called right you have something you want to explain and then you come up with a an elegant explanation of it so maybe I've got this weird feature of um native speakers not making, not com- compounding want to in some cases and doing it in others. What's the, what's the elegant explanation of it, right? Although you didn't say as much, you chose an elegant explanation of it, right? Um, and, and then according to the model, what we do is we take features of elegance. So something like simplicity, which will give us maybe a, a formal analysis of something like unifying power. So we unify lots of different bits of evidence from different speakers and different, different languages, different sentences. Um, and other features of, of the theory, both intrinsic features, extrinsic features. And then we'll somehow sort of add up all of those features and work out how good that theory is overall. That, that's the basic idea. Now, lots of that model are pretty fa- phasy still. So, so there's disagreement about exactly what simplicity is, disagreement about what exactly unity is, and all these other properties of the theory. Um,
0: and these are these are what? Like how how fine-grained are those attributes. If you say simplicity, it's either simple or not simple. Clearly not, right? Because, yeah.
3: So that so, looks like a matter of degree, right? So, so yes. let's, let's just chat through a couple of the models of simplicity then because they, they do different things. So you might say that the, the, the simplicity is the sort of the minimum message length. So I've got a certain language that's fixed, and I'm going to use that language for all of my assessments of simplicity. And then how – and that, that language got certain sort of empirical uh, – operators, empirical concepts, how if effectively that the test is, what's the shortest amount of time I can express this theory in? What's the shortest string in which I can express this theory in? That's how simple the theory is. The difficulty with that is it, it seems to make your judgments of simplicity relative to a, a certain language, a certain body of empirical concepts, right? Um, and and what's to stop for someone coming and saying, no, no, it's not the simple theory because you're, you're measuring using the wrong language. That language dependence looks really bad. Mm. And it seems quite, quite robust, right? Even if you put other re- restrictions on how you can frame the theory, so you want it to be articulate enough to explain a bunch of different observations, it's still the case that just by switching language, we can come up with an equally... Um, robust language that's able to express the same things that you want to express, but which will make the same theory have a different length and therefore be less, less or more simple. But you know, I wanted to suggest that it, it looks like what you mean by elegance is actually something quite different, right? Because, well, well for one thing, it's like you're using it for a different purpose.
1: Right? Certainly. Yeah.
3: Because you can have a proof just a complex one, and you know it works. So it's not not complex, sorry, an, an inelegant one, right? You know it works. Hmm. So there's a, there's a mystery, right? Why why look for the elegant proof? Why look for the proof that's in the book? Because with your case, it, it makes more sense, right? Because we're looking for the simple theory because we think it's most likely to be the right one to make, to make the best explanation of what's going on. So so there's, there are these mysteries of simplicity. There's I mean, there are other models of simplicity. A standard one is number of variables, suffers actually from a very similar problem of language dependence. Um, but at least we can show that under certain conditions, if you have the right number of variables, then you're going to be able to make predictions. If you have too few variables, you're going to project noise into the future. You're going to overfit. So imagine you've got a, a bunch of data, but there's some noise, there's some idiosyncrasies in the data. It doesn't need to be random, just has to be idiosyncratic. And maybe you've got a graph, right? a two-dimensional graph. You put some some data points in it. You draw... What are you taught in school? You're, you're not taught to draw the line that goes through each point. Yeah. Why not? Well, because that overfits. Because what you're doing is you're saying the the kind of curiosities, the kind of curves in that data, you're projecting those into future future data you're gonna get. Yeah. And that's that's just not not the right thing to do. Yeah, so, it's so that's not a nice, good for
0: extrapolation, it's not. Yeah. Good for, yeah.
3: It's another nice model of very, very simple, but another nice model of simplicity. But again, how you draw your axes, right? What your axes are are going to change how simple your theory is. So it suffers that same problem of language dependence. And there are other, we've, we've played around with them. So we have these models of simplicity. I don't know yet what, what we should say about your sort of elegance. You know.
1: So the, this question of why would one look for an elegant proof when one already has a proof? Mm. I think the one of the answers to that is simply that we are... It's not that we don't accept the non-elegant or the complicated proofs, but we feel that we don't learn enough from them except the fact that the original statement is indeed true. So there's a theorem which you want to prove and somebody cranks out a 100 page, 150 page uh, proof and you can sit and verify each line of this proof indeed follows from the previous lines and having checked it all over 150 pages. Okay, so now I accept that the theorem is true. So, can you explain why the theorem is true? No, you can only point to those 150 pages. So, in that sense, you have not learnt enough from the proof. An elegant proof should not only prove that the theorem is true, but it should give you some insight into why the theorem and is true. And why
0: is it that insights lie only in short, crisp proofs and not? So, this in... is
1: probably related to what we think about the powers of human reasoning. Right. Can a human being really extract this insight from a very verbose argument? So it's similar to courtroom dramas, which go on over days and weeks and months. Anyway, it's similar to
0: what uh, Tanmay was saying a while ago, right? There must be natural limits to how long sentences can be, and so on, for you to actually continue to comprehend the meaning. Um, Would that be fair to say?
2: Yeah, well, that's true at one level. For example, this uh, relative, this nursery rhymes, Mm. the rat that the cat that chased the rat that ate Mm -hmm. the cheese. You know, you can keep on saying one sentence for your one life mm. but that very short life because you probably die of breathlessness or something like that <laughs> yeah. but it is mathematically possible to just say one sentence but then the nursery rhyme, of course stops at some point because it gives you a finite verb that lived in Peter's house or something like that so it cuts the uh, 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 that uh, recursive it has, chain it has,
0: it has length but it doesn't have that high complexity right
2: Yes, yeah, that's a different issue. Your yeah. first question was different. Yeah. The complexity comes from where you do the embedding. This yeah. is like this is the embedding. It's not really embedding. You're chaining one thing to another. Yeah. So you're talking about the cat, then you're talking about the dog, then you're talking about the whatever animal. but uh, And then you're coming back to the uh, first one, the rat or the cat. So you're ending the sentence like that. But suppose you want to talk about the rat and then talk about the cat. So the, take an example like the the rat... Uh, The cat chased, uh, ate the cheese. That's fine. People can process it, although it's slightly odd. But the moment you say the rat, the cat, the dog, chased, killed, ate the cheese, (laughs) processing completely breaks down. Although it's exactly the same process of embedding. I can show you by drawing tree diagrams that it's the same process of embedding.
0: So would you agree that there's something similar at work when mathematicians like uh, Meena are looking for...
2: Uh, crispier proofs. yeah. But I want to say one thing. I think also it comments on the nature of science. So I sometimes say, maybe wrongly, but uh, uh, just to inspire the linguistic students more that they're doing something really worthwhile, <laughs> to say that this is really a hard, it's a hard science. Hmm. Sometimes harder than physics and mathematics. Because all the time, physicists can write a complex equation about the turbulence uh, of water or turbulence in air. And that equation, the shape of the equation itself may have nothing to do with the actual natural phenomena. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But for me, if I write an equation about a sentence derivation, it must also at the same time explain how that sentence or type of sentence is acquired by human children. So there is always this, uh, in, uh, in my classes I always draw this small cartoon figure of a child at the corner of the board. <laughs> and say that don't forget that uh, fellow yeah. because we are trying to like construct that, a theory yeah, where the toddler is able to process. Yeah, himself. it's exactly yeah. because you know human child uh, comes up with the almost perfect language by two and a half years or three years. Okay, and how do they do it? And this whole poverty of stimulus business—that there yes. are too little data out there in the world—but they come up with the right kind of uh, grammar. Uh, we have to construct a theory which addresses that question.
0: But you know, understanding. Or comprehending something is different from reasoning, right? Um, Does this say anything about this two-and-a-half-year-old toddler thing? Um, Does that tell you anything about reasoning and its nature per se?
3: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: What does it tell you?
3: I was wondering if we could go back a little bit and then come back. Sure. Go back to your earlier claim about telling us about science itself, right? So let's separate out explanation and understanding. I could explain something well without understanding it, supposing i i give you i don't know I give you quantum mechanics and I give you this beautiful explanation, but you're mathematically naive and and for you it gives you, you no understanding whatsoever, but you have the explanation mm-hmm. you might think I could give you understanding without explanation that's a little bit trickier right um, just so stories right why did the rhino get the um, rumples in his skin right because the took the skin off and it got, got little um, dirt in it and he scratched himself up and that made him all have wrinkly in the skin, right? So, but in any case, at the very least, explanation looks different from understanding. So what does this notion of elegance give us if it's not getting us to truth? Well, or something like truth. Well, I- is it getting us understanding? Quite possibly. Yes. Um, is it getting us more, though? Is it getting us explanation? Now, explanation in... in in the field of linguistics, looks perfectly sensible, right? It's a causal thing, right? Why did I, why is why is there milk all over the floor? Because I knocked the milk over, right? so I spilled it, I just citing a cause. But in maths, there's no apparent causation. So what on earth is it to mathematically explain?
0: Why Why do you say that? Because one step leading to another, the previous step is the cause for the next step and so on, right? Um, in, in your in fact,
3: mind, one thing's causing another, but of course, the proof isn't In my mind, because it's after all the same thing which you come to realise and comes to be the thing which you're thinking about too.
0: But but Mina, any proof would have a causal link from one step to another. When you write down the proof,
1: you are using inference rules. uh, Mm. When you're stating that this proof is correct, you're stating that each line of the proof follows from the preceding lines via some accepted rules of inference.
3: Mm. True, but that's also true, isn't it, for the long proof? That's also true for the long proof. So it can't be that the short proof is adding explanation in that sense, which the long proof doesn't have.
0: No, it's not. If it's anything, true. the longer proof should should somehow be more than the shorter <laughs> one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
3: So, so the mystery remains a little bit. I mean, it does strike me there is something which is mathematical explanation. We just don't know quite what it is yet. My favourite example of this is from Peter Lipton. He says, take a bunch of sticks, right? And throw them up in the air at a random orientation uh, and take a photo and you'll find that most of them are more of them are closer to horizontal than they are to vertical. Why mm-hmm. is that? Well, Maybe it's because you threw it up funny. Maybe it's because of, I don't know, something funny going on in the wind. Or maybe it's because the area of a sphere 45 degrees from the horizon is much bigger than the area of the sphere 45 degrees from the vertical. There, roughly there are more ways to be closer to the horizontal than they are to the vertical. It looks there like mass is doing explanatory work. It's not causal, it's not like the, the, the Euclid is somehow causing the axioms of Euclid are somehow causing this this physical fact.
0: No, certainly not. Not in that yeah. sense.
3: So math does seem to be explanatory. I want to, I want to suggest there's more of a role for elegance than
0: uh-huh.
3: than you than you're, than you're giving it credit for. I don't know. Is that what do you think?
1: I did not think of it this way. It's
0: and you know even mathematicians are human beings, right? So maybe you're just looking for elegance as I a think human that's what being. what me now saying as, as opposed to it necessarily being a mathematical attribute. But your point, Meena, is that there is something mathematically different about shorter proofs than longer proofs. Or
1: That's not very clear, no. No, what I was trying to say was in this realm of, you know, what understanding do you get out of the proof that an elegant proof... So, I'm not conflating elegance with shortness. Sure, sure, sure. But uh, an elegant proof will provide more understanding of the underlying situation than an, then an inelegant proof. An inelegant proof may even be obfuscating things along the way.
0: Are there deceptive proofs? Are there fraudulent proofs? Are there proofs that look correct but are not correct? No, those would not the, be proofs. Hmm. They would not be proofs to begin with. They would not be. They are fallacy, fallacious <laughs> proofs. But there are sentences which are like that. that yeah. yeah then, they, which syntactically they look perfect um, yeah. and you know you yeah. You kind of almost immediately and instantly get the meaning uh, but the meaning is nonsensical or something like that.
2: Yeah, both ways actually. You can, uh, like this famous celebrated Chomsky sentence from 50s, colorless, green ideas, sleep furiously. Everything is perfect grammatically there but you just can't. It's a beast as far as semantics is concerned. It's uh, gibberish. But another way also you can say uh, this room seems seems, uh, uh, this room seems Ravi doesn't keep the house very clean. It's completely ungrammatical, yeah, but you somehow but you get can get meaning. a sense of it. Like this room seems dirty because he doesn't keep the house clean. Now, why
0: does that happen?
2: Well, it, there's a processing story going on, of course, when it comes to semantics, because semantics, uh, it's like not just semantics, but also here semantics and cognition. So I think there's a processing story that we choose to highlight certain things and combine certain uh, salient features and construct a meaning out of that. But, um, you know, to keep to the question that you asked, uh, sentences are one thing, but the derivation for that sentence, the computation for the sentence is what when we consider the proof, right? So there, I think the question of elegance is uh, very much there. We have certain metric. Like, for example, um, uh, we would say shorter is better, shorter distance, because we have these dependency relations. Earlier, I gave two examples when you move things in the front. In English, it happens that you move things in the front quite often in Germanic languages. And you have this dependency between from the place it's a landing site and it's a base generation position. So this dependency uh, depends on how far it is. Uh, it has been seen that, uh, uh, for example, uh, questions in English, um, no matter what the distance, you're going to put the so-called question word right in the front. Mm. English happens to be a language where If there are more than two questions, you move only one to the front. Mm. So you cannot say who what bought. You have to say who bought what. Mm. But if you're speaking some East European language, Bulgarian or something, you have to say who what bought. But in English, when you move this who in the front, even if it's a very long sentence, who uh, said that um, Peter saw uh, that he heard uh, Mina say something. You're actually questioning something right at the end of the sentence but you have to still move that who right in the front so there's a very long distance dependency to the left there is no language no language where this long distance dependency similar long distance dependency you see on the right it, there's been claimed that some sign languages there is the wh word moves to the right but there is actually no um, uh, other language where you see such kind of long distance dependency on the right hand side. So it tells us something about the basic symmetrical property of language and that that I think is what makes it scientific. there is that part which is symmetrical and becomes similar to mathematics and the structure of proof etc but there is also constantly checking your explanation. like it said explanation we actually have a term explanatory adequacy. explanatory adequacy is met when your grammar or your uh, proof, uh, ex- structured in the same way as, uh, as the child acquires that sentence. So that's explanatory adequacy for us. But then there's something, explanatory adequacy, when you have to constantly check with what the real situation on the ground is, that is when I think we depart from mathematics. right? Because then uh, that's when I, I was with her, when she said that a shorter proof is uh, elegant because the human reasoning... Sh- uh, circuit is would also choose the minimal uh, uh, minimal sort of route I mean if I have to go from here to the bus stop I will obviously not go to Calcutta and then come back to the bus stop in Mumbai right so um, my reasoning will be also the shortest route and that's what we see in
0: language But what's the link between language and reasoning is it language dependent is it uh, domain dependent does it depend on the domain and the nature of problems Again, on this question of how do you make that causal chain or that explanatory chain that you've you've referred to a few times, right, going from a certain axioms, certain hypotheses, all the way towards the end, which, let's say, culminates in some kind of a theory. And, of course, after that comes this whole business of testing one theory versus the other.
3: The very standard view, which is academic speak for the view I'm about to reject, is that there's this method of reasoning sometimes conflated with the scientific method, which is universal. I don't think many many philosophers of science buy into that nowadays. Maybe some, some Bayesians do, I don't know. Um I, I'm pretty sceptical of and, and, all methods in one sense.
0: What do you mean when you say methods of reasoning? You mean there is there is something now obviously like in tanma's world there's this whole business of universal grammar uh, yeah. which you know some people kind of disagree with but that's fine it's kind of a lot of people agree to it uh, now that's this grammar um, can something similar be said about
3: now yeah yeah i mean that, that's that's a common enough idea and and for some of the same reasons right why did we why did chomsky think there was a universal grammar well the poverty of the stimulus argument is is a big deal right so young young kids are able to make these grammatical inferences, which it seems hard to explain how they could do unless this was something innate in them.
0: I think the question is whether reasoning
3: uh,
0: is mm -hmm. a different kind of faculty or even that happens within similar poverty of stimulus uh, situations. So it looks like like we're
3: going to have to have some sort of similar poverty of stimulus thing because young kids can also make good inductive inferences way before they could ever get enough data from other people about how to do induction. It's even worse because... How could they possibly get good evidence about how to reason before they're able to reason? So you must be—it looks like you must be born with some uh, innate uh, inductive principles. And what's more, they seem to have some of the same properties. Maybe it's using similar similar faculties of the mind, some judgments of elegance. However, I'm going to claim that in in a certain very precise way, they're not universal. So I don't think that there are um, rules that which get you from the properties of the theory and the evidence to which theory is the right theory. In other words, it's not a function of properties of the theory and the evidence to the correct theory, right? Um, I mean, the argument with that is a little bit fiddly, but, um, but it's, kind of, it's kind of worrying because... And we can go through the argument if you like, but um, it's kind of worrying because if what there aren't What's rules... What's the argument? So the argument is, is, is an application of this, this theory in economics called Arrows' Theorem. Mm-hmm. So Aristotle is usually used to show that there's no possibility of democracy, right? You've got
0: social choice theory. Social choice theory, right? Yeah. You've got
3: you know you've got the um, voter and you've got yeah, yeah. Yeah. candidates and so forth, right? So all we do is we um, switch out uh, voters for properties of the theory, simplicity and unity and fit to empirical evidence. We switch out the candidate for the theories, um, and then you transfer independence, relative alternatives, all the actions, weak Pareto. Transfer them over to the equivalent in the theory choice case, and you get the same result. The only permissible rule under those very weak constraints is dictatorship, which in this case would mean there's one property of the theory which tells you how to rank the theories, and you only consult the other properties when there's a dead heat in that first property. But that's just not plausible. Scientists don't say, "Oh, empirical fits all that matters," and I'm only looking at elegance insofar as I'm, you know, there's a dead heat empirical fit Um, because of the reason we talked about earlier, You don't want to overfit, right? So if Arrows' theorem works, if it applies in this case of theory choice, there just isn't any algorithm. There's no rule-based inductive reasoning system. So what on earth goes on? Well, I don't know, but there are no universal rules. I don't really, yeah, and that's, that's how on earth could we be reliable? How on earth could little kids make good inductive arguments when there aren't these general rules that they're born with? They must be born with something. What are they born with?
2: Maybe the abilities to reason, because that's what we say for abilities to pick up mm. language. It's not that they are really born with the grammar, but with the machine, which is able to figure out with minimal exposure what the grammar structure going to be.
3: So, yeah, can you yeah. think of something like that? So it's going to be it's going to be something like that, isn't it? Going to be some, a disposition to learn a way of projecting your your evidence into the mm-hmm. future. Um, but what you can't be disposed to do is just pick up rules. So that you can't be disposed to pick up grammatical rules, because that again would fall under Arrows' theorem. So what are you being disposed to do? But um, are you
2: saying that maybe reasoning is also culturally
3: determined? It would be quite surprising if it wasn't in the following sense. Take a geologist and put them in a room and ask them how they reason. Take a physicist and put them in the room and ask their reason. And take you two and put you in a room. You'll all give me very different stories. And, and not only will you give me different So, the geologists will talk a lot about unity Well, the adults are are like corrupted reasoning. (laughs) (laughs) If you
2: put the kids, will they reason differently? Suppose uh, uh, four kids from different cultural backgrounds are in a room and there is fire lit, which is a dangerous thing to do when kids are around. (laughs) But just for the sake of this uh, thought experiment, if you have a fire lit in the corner of the room, will they
3: reason out differently, do you think? You wouldn't expect them to, would you? Um, You wouldn't expect them I wouldn't expect them to, Mm -hmm. no. You'd expect them to... And I guess thinking about some of the experiments that I know of, um, reasoning about that's the that nature objects. culture yeah. issue, yeah. Yeah. right? How
0: much of that is coming directly from who we are biologically and so on, and um, nature culture, right? That's the that's the problem in many ways.
2: So I would find it hard to believe that uh, young children's reasoning
3: can be widely different. But maybe they're getting a common thing. It's just not a set of rules. Sure. Sure. It's it's some yeah. other sense of, it's a sense of what is simple, an ability yeah. to detect what's simple, let's say,
2: yeah.
3: and a reliable ability to detect what's simple, but not one which you could capture within a rule where rules rule of is just a so. function for features to, yeah. to assessment. So,
0: Meena, maybe we can ask this question in your domain, right? Mm-hmm. Because this whole business of proofs and proving and doing what mathematicians do is, is a form and kind of reasoning. Hmm. And... There, like you mentioned a while ago, it's just you start with certain axioms or whatever, something very basic. And then there are a bunch of rules and moves that are permitted. And then you just go from one step to another. That's kind of broadly what happens. Yes. So where would you be on this question? Obviously, mathematicians need a crazy amount of training and all kinds of rules. to. Yes, go but ma- the
1: mathematician's viewpoint is also not directly applicable to these situations because we already have a very... Uh, Formal, formalized rigid model. <laughs> so when we say in a mathematical proof you have these axioms and you have these rules in a real life situation you do not even know what the axioms are. Yeah. So somehow a lot of this just breaks down. So I, I would find it very difficult to reconcile uh, this notion of proof with an explaining of the reasoning that a child does. What Kit was saying a moment ago that perhaps kids are born with the ability to tell what is a simple proof. If, if that is the case, that also I would find astounding because at least in a, the mathematics is picking up various real-life situations perhaps and then trying to formalize them in some way or the other. We still do not have formal definitions of what would constitute uh, simple or elegant. We have measures, but uh, these are measures of simplicity and complexity, not of elegance. Mm, and mm. I think what the kids are doing really uh, veering towards the, the right method, the elegant method.
0: So in mathematics, uh, not not in, not in this messy real world, okay. where do the non-obvious results come from? I know there's not going to be one answer.
1: So 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 when you say where do the non-obvious proofs or where do the non-obvious results come from? Now this yeah. non-obviousness is different. It's this non-obviousness is referring to the fact that finally you have proven something which people did not expect to be true. Hmm. And why did they not expect it to be true before it was proven? Was uh, is just insufficient knowledge.
0: Mm-hmm yeah so
1: so th- that that's a different domain but i would say that, so so another place where something non obvious comes in is uh, uh, has to do with verification in the computational sense verifying a proof so i could have a statement which is completely obviously true and i want to prove it it's it's, it's uh, the 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 truth should be self evident to anybody with some modicum of intelligence but maybe i want to Dump it down further, address somebody who can really do a very simple line-by-line check. And now, depending on to what level you want to dump it down, the proof may become very long or may still remain moderately short. So, now, the the fact, if you you run into a situation where the proof has become very long, then suddenly it looks like, oh, the statement is not obvious because it requires such a long proof. Mm. But why did it require such a long proof? Because the person who was verifying the proof was not... uh, Capable of making higher leaps of uh, reasoning.
0: Yeah, so in that sense, the shorter proofs are in a way the. Every they are single addressing step, a more enlightened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because no, every single step is a compound statement and in many ways. It's referencing many, many, many other aspects. Yes. Now, equally in that same way, in why are false statements sometimes very, very difficult to prove as being false?
1: actually uh, same, in, in this context thing. false or true would not matter no. so much yeah, exactly. exactly. I would just complement the true statement and there I have a false statement and maybe it's hard to prove that it is false
0: and if you jump to your world and my I mean when thinking of language a little bit evolutionarily um, there are folks and evolutions or whatever that happen on, on somewhat unexpected lines right mm-hmm. um, is that just a matter of chance or there is something which is a feature of language and you say that these are the changes that are likely ahead. Are some changes more likely than not in just the way languages evolve because of the whatever the morphology, the structure that exists at any point in time?
2: Well, the claim is that it has not evolved at all. What, the language? Yes, the, so evolution is a misnomer when you attach it with language. So Chomsky's claim, this is a non-evolutionary theory of language evolution. It happened 75,000 or 100,000 years ago a freak accident, perhaps, but something.
0: And something but, like language came to the world. Something and then it like exists. language
2: came to the world because it was able to do recursion, basically. Because there is if.
1: Uh, when you say language here now, you mean language with words. So the picture language is the here. No, hero I mean, clips, I mean language they would not the, have the structure.
2: Language in the mind, basically. We're I'm not sure. talking about speech. Yeah. Speech most probably happened much later. Yeah. So the non-obvious things are many. Yeah. So on surface, I can say any kinds of misfits so one of the things could be let's say which is a common reality these days is code mixed versions Right yeah. when you mix let's say Hindi or English or lots of people worked on different kind of mixing and also another thing which I think grammarians didn't talk about so much at least uh, grammarians didn't talk about so much was uh, social linguists talked about it is the variation within a certain language and these variations exist to a great extent as we discover and again, the challenge is, how, how does your model address this variation? And in the first example, how does a model which is meant for, let's say, monolingual, I'm doing a um, universal grammar, I'm deriving a grammar for English from there or uh, Bangla from there, and I'm creating a theory of Bangla or English, uh, etc. But then how, that is uh, majorly for a monolingual variety. What happens when you mix codes? So when you have Bangla and English, or in Hindi and English, etc. And also depends on what you're mixing. So what with. is
0: retained then when you mix?
2: So when you yes, that's a good, that's a good question to ask. So you see, you, it on surface it looks like a messy world. Everyone is mixing everything, but that's not true, because if you look down at the surface, if you look beyond the surface if you look at the structure you see that certain mistakes are never made Uh, let me give an example for example um, it's a maybe a young person's lingo but you might be familiar with uh, this Hindi English mix Um, so you can add O with a a Hindi verb in an English sentence so um, um, I will talo the uh, fish like I fry the fish right or uh, uh, in Bangla I'll say bhajo the fish right that O is actually neither Bangla or Hindi and neither it is English you won't use it so where is it coming from and then you can see that you can't do it with all kinds of verbs but words.
0: something sounds right
2: about it yeah something sounds right about it because you're familiar with the imperative structure in uh-huh. Hindi at least uh, and also Bangla but Marathi it may not be the case uh, when the O is there but this O is a different animal it's not the same thing as the O like uh, as you say yeah. for drink in Hindi you say P-O yeah, like yeah. it's not that O but then you notice other things you also uh, people also can say um, Talo Phi. Fai. fai that Fai is actually English fai, yeah, which talks about a resultant state
0: Yeah,
2: but you can use it only with predicates or verbs which you give you a result you can't really do it with, let's say, sitting or standing. You can't say um, batofai. Yeah, it's completely ungrammatical. No one, no kid will make that mistake. Whenever they're mixing randomly, they will not say it. So it depends on the structure of the verb. If it's an intransitive verb, uh, which will not take an object, it cannot go this uh, direction because you cannot have a resultant state. Uh, if it's a transitive verb, you can do it, and but not all transitive verbs. Transitive verbs which uh, give you a resultant state you can do that so I think there's a pattern in this mixing is, and result is also in black English long time back vernacular English are
0: there th- yeah, yeah pigeon and creole and things of that sort yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. are there moves like this happening when you work on your proofs now in, in, in some ways there's some kind of meaning that is retained when you say talofai or talo right? now I know when you do your proofs they have a certain structure and so on but there's an element of code mixing here you are no of course, no, mathematics is not one monolithic thing. There are different ways of doing things. Is there something similar that is at work and that's where... So where do the creative moves come from, right? I mean, the why, why do... When you're struggling with proofs, what exactly do you struggle with? And when you make those breakthroughs, where exactly do they come from? That's, in a way, the question. Now, there's not going to be one answer to something like yeah. this because it depends... But the highly, I don't think that yeah. would
1: be related to... Hmm. So these kind of uh, mixing things i don't think that they are pointing to the creativity in a proof so where is the where is the creative aspect in in finding a proof so basically we want to say that uh, verifying a proof is much more easy than finding a proof the task of verifying is easy the task of coming up with a proof in the first case is that is the creative task and
0: and that holds even when it's done computationally and not by human beings not their automatic theorem provers and so on uh, even in that so realm, e-
1: even a computational, even an automatic theorem prover will be able to. So so, so, the, uh, what can an automatic theorem prover do if, if the statement is true and if there is a short proof of it, maybe this automatic theorem prover can churn out, check through all possible short proofs until it finds this. And that would take a huge amount of time. Sure. If it is creative enough, it may find that short proof fast. If there is no short proof at all, then there is no not much hope for this uh, theorem prover to find it quickly. So finding the proof, uh, even, even through an automated process, whether it's automated or non-automated, it, it's still a fundamentally much more difficult task. And even in situations where there are short proofs, we know of proof systems where certain statements do have short proofs, but we don't know how to automatize them. In fact, so so we know that these proof systems are not automatizable. It is not the case that every theorem which has a
0: short proof, the short proof can be discovered by an automatic process. And why so? Why why is that constraint there? And when you say proof systems, what exactly do you mean? Ah,
1: okay, I, I, I did not quite define. So so by a proof system, I would, maybe I should uh, get a little bit technical here. Sure. So there's a family of theorems which I would like to prove. And then I'm going to set up the syntax in which I, I'm allowed to make uh, statements. I specify a priori what inference rules are going to be allowed. And then a proof system for this family of theorems would be some kind of function which maps an alleged proof into a theorem from that family. So if this alleged, whenever this function maps an alleged proof to some statement, the resulting statement had better be a theorem. The function should never produce a non-theorem. That's one requirement. But the other requirement is, so, so, so this function may even be given something which is not a valid proof. The function should be smart enough to detect, okay, this is not a valid proof. So now let me just spit out a default theorem. Right. But the other requirement which we would demand is that for every theorem, there should be at least one proof which causes the function to output that theorem. Uh. Every every theorem should have a proof and every alleged proof should result in a theorem. Uh. Such a function would be a proof system. And from a computational viewpoint, such a proof system would be completely useless if it cannot be checked quickly. So, that's where the verifier comes in. Given an alleged proof, pulling actually computing the theorem that this function will obtain from it should be doable in a reasonable amount of time by whatever metric we choose. Time, space, complexity in whatever form. So, this would be a proof system. So, So, the person who is checking or trying to compute this function value, that's what I would call the verifier. The verifier has to be limited in some way. Otherwise, this... Otherwise I can uh, define a completely useless proof system which just, uh, you know, maps theorems to theorems and non-theorems to one default theorems without doing anything along the way. So the inference has to be made explicit.
2: But the verifier is, uh, does it, uh, are there any metrics to decide what is a good verifier? Because that would answer the earlier thing that... So one of the most
1: common metrics that we use is uh, polynomial time. So if I give you a, proof, an alleged proof, and you want to check, is this a valid proof? What theorem does it produce? Then I can do this. There is a program which can or an algorithm which can do this. And the amount of time it takes should
0: depend on the on the size of the, on the, size mm-hmm. of
1: the proof, only yeah. polynomially, yeah. not
0: exponential. Again, we're getting into the PNP zone in a way. Right? Exactly. Then we're in the so it comes exactly to
1: that problem about can you verify this proof efficiently? And is this proof Not too long compared to the size of the theorem that you want to prove. So this question is very closely related to the P versus NP question, which was the big question in computational complexity. This is slightly different because it is related more to NP and complements of NP. Mm. So uh, an NP problem would be one where you can quickly certify truth by giving a witnessing structure. So if a statement is true, I can provide the short witness. If the statement is false, how do I prove that? So this seems to be harder. This is like that pairing example which I gave in the beginning. Mm. To prove that there is a pairing is easy. You give the pairing. To prove that there is no pairing may not be easy unless you can find this obstruction set. Mm. But there are many settings where proving absence seems to be harder than proving existence. Mm-hmm. of in, a,
0: in, in all situations or some situations? In some situations. Not, not necessarily
3: all. Yes, kid. So you talked about there are short proofs that You know, can't be automated. There are
1: proof systems Uh which cannot be automated.
3: Proof systems that cannot be automated. What's the property of them that makes them impossible to automate?
1: It's not very clear to me.
3: Okay. We just know, we just can prove that you can't put it in a Turing machine or whatever. Uh,
1: No, no. So I guess there are people who understand this better than I do, this whole business of automation. For instance, one of the most simple proof systems that we use very often in showing that some formula is not satisfiable, there's a proof system called resolution and there are variants of resolution which we know are not automatizable so when we say we know they are not automatizable meaning we know that there are state there are formulas which are unsatisfiable and the fact that they are unsatisfiable can be proven in this system resolution these proofs that they are unsatisfiable are not too long but any mechanical process for discovering a proof in resolution would eventually produce a resolution proof, but that proof may, would not be short.
0: And Meena, when you say resolution, what do you mean? So that we get it right. So
1: resolution, Okay, it's it's one specific example of a proof system. Resolution is a proof system which works as follows. I'm trying to say, I give you a Boolean formula, which has lots of variables. Mm. Each variable is supposed to take a value is true, true or,
0: false? or false. Yeah.
1: And finally, when you plug in these values, the, does the resulting formula become true? Correct. The claim is this formula is not satisfiable. Mm. No matter what, true-false values you give to the individual variables, the final formula is false. Mm. I want to prove this. Now, let's say that the formula has a very specific structure. It's a conjunction of many clauses. Mm-hmm. So, instead of being an arbitrary formula, it is a formula which says the clause 1 is true and clause 2 is true. Each clause looks like X1 or X2 or not X3 or X4. You know, sure. something like this. Just sure. a pure disjunction of individual variables and their literals. Sure. Okay? So, If my formula is of this concrete form, it's just a conjunction of clauses, then here's what I can say. If the formula were actually satisfiable, if there were an assignment which satisfied all these clauses, and if I had two clauses, one of them has X and some other junk, let's say it has not junk, well, it is X and some other part A. And there's another clause which has not X and some other part B. The assignment which satisfies all the clauses must satisfy these two. And if it must satisfy these two, well, it must satisfy A or B because it's setting X to either true or false. Exactly. So any assignment which satisfies all the clauses must also satisfy additionally the clause A or B. Mm. I can throw that also into my formula and it changes nothing with respect to satisfiability. Mm. If the original thing was satisfiable, so is this. Now what resolution, so this throwing in this additional clause is the inference rule that this proof system uses. And so it's called resolution. You're resolving these two clauses to add a new clause. But what does this achieve? It, I am given an initial set of clauses which is not satisfiable, but it's not so obvious that they are not satisfiable. By repeatedly using resolution, I will make the unsatisfiability obvious and explicit by finally producing an empty clause. All right. It has no literal in it. Then it's completely clear. No assignment can ever satisfy that clause. Because the only way to satisfy it is to set something in it to true and it is; it has nothing in it. So I want to make the inherent uh, uns- uh, contradiction explicit. I do that by step by step applying these resolution rules to my given set of clauses until I come up with the empty clause. Hmm. How many steps does it take until I can derive the empty clause? My initial set of clauses may, may encode a, a, a something unsatisfiable, which is very obviously unsatisfiable. It could encode, for instance, something which says I have hundred letters and I'm going to put them into 90 boxes and each box has at most one letter.
0: Right. Obviously Obviously And I'm
1: encoding this through a bunch of clauses. But from these set of clauses, if I use only the rule of resolution and nothing else, to come up with a final empty clause is going to take number of steps, which is exponential in the number of letters. Hmm. So if I started with 190, it's going to be something like 2 to the 100. Hmm. Now, this is a ridiculous situation. You know, oh. it's, It should be so obvious that this is false that you should be able to prove it efficiently. So what this is really telling us is that resolution is a weak system. Oh. It's, it's, it's telling us something about the proof system, not so much about the statement that we're trying to prove. But therefore, we get valuable information out of this. We know that this statement would be hard to prove to anybody whose computational power is comparable to that of resolution. Right. So that is where the verifier's computational ability comes in.
0: This, this, you've used the notion of hard a few times. Does that surface in your world at all, Kit? What about this, what about computational difficulty or difficulty itself of uh, problems, questions per se? Because, you know, one is to give it attributes of simplicity, elegance, uh, empirical fit, this, that, which which are, and because this whole question of hardness is a very different one. Yes.
1: Computational hardness is very, very different, different from problem. hardness of being able to prove a theorem at all.
3: Yeah. Yes. I mean yes, in as much as Turing's a philosopher. <laughs> He's one of ours. No surprise. <laughs> yeah. Um do we think about complexity of proof in that sense? Um I mean we certainly should. So so for far too long we did what um just shouldn't be done. We pretended that human beings are these all-powerful, logically omniscient uh, robots. So, I mean, we still do this, right? If, if you're a Bayesian, if you think that um, people reason like probabilistic, like you, you think that people reason in this probabilistic way, but you, one of the assumptions has to be that you have to treat all logical truths as a, as a probability of one, which would make me and his job rather redundant, I'm afraid, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> if any human being, such a human being existed. So some of us still reason that way, but but we we can't do that um i'm going to what we what we say what we have to do then say why we're not doing it so what we have to do is take account not only of reasonable constraints of the sort that, that you're talking about but much more heavy constraints we have to talk to the psychologists about what sort of reasoning processes normal untrained people can go through because only then could we correctly describe what normal how normal people are reasoning um why don't we do it well right now we can't even work out how Anything could do it, even a Turing machine, right? Um, take, for example, the puzzle which we've been skirting around a bit of like, where do the ideas come from? Yep. Supposing I've got this space of, you know, I want to investigate a certain area. Uh, maybe it's the colour of a new bird I've discovered or something like that, or a, or a new sort of grammatical structure or grammaticality I've found. I'm looking for an explanation, right? It looks like there are... An infinity of theories out there. this is this huge space to search through um only one of which was true and and worse, it looks like the way that I search is to take a few theories at a time and and apply quite a very quite a difficult procedure to work out which one's right um and and Karl Popper famously thought that you just think them up at random like it's just like evolution, blind variation, selective retention um that can't be it if it were then we'd be tremendously lucky to hit on the truth in any decent amount of time. So what? On earth, so, so we know something spooky is going on merely in the creation process. What on earth is it? I don't, we can't even work out how to get around that very basic problem, let alone take into account all the limitations, all the more reasonable, psychologically plausible limitations of, of humans. I think we need to start, start actually with machine learning kind of solutions and what... Because machine learning what right, yeah, you're saying machine learning these. seems like an interesting area mm. to
0: to ask some of these questions,
3: yeah so so the answer is yeah, we should take into account this sort of thing and more, but um we're not we're not there yet, we're not good enough at philosophy yet,
0: yeah, I think the question is and maybe we end with this of how do we know what one is missing right uh, that's that's so where is where is this headed then my uh, well, in the long run come because... back to the
2: evolution question that you asked I didn't really answer it if this so-called non-evolutionary theory says the language really has not changed but we we do see language change uh, but uh, in that case our claim would be it is a speech which has changed and then if you see code mixing and you see patterns in code mixing which you can explain so the new thing that uh, has happened in the last uh, couple of decades about this Uh, research on uh, so-called misfits, uh, not so obvious, let's say, constructions like code mixing or variation, etc., is that uh, more and more people are trying to show, those who are working from within grammar, not again, those who are looking at uh, social linguistic point of view, but those who are working from within grammar, uh, they are trying to explain from the apparatus that has been set up already that we have a very good theory already and we don't need to change anything in the theory. Right. These are the s- forms which, on the surface which have changed. Yeah. So that really uh, reinforces the ev- non-evolutionary theory that nothing has really changed as far as the uh, underlying structures are concerned. And I would go back to the question you asked, Kit, that because I think there is some, uh, this, in this non-evolutionary or the evolutionary, both are fables in some way. <laughs> I think there is uh, this whole issue of reasoning also is there. Because it is also um, uh, at the same time, this 75,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago, is the same time as out of Africa thesis, right? People actually started moving from East Africa and they're able to think differently. They're able to find sources of tools at a far distance. Their limbs and all, of course, had changed much long ago. But the ability to reason, I think, also was happening at the same time. So I think it is like, I don't know enough about it, but I think the reasoning and language to that extent, as far as evolution is concerned, our underlying structural properties are concerned are kind of similar.
0: Yeah, so Meena, what lies ahead? I mean, do you, what, what are open questions for you in this context? Um, proof systems, proofs, this business of true and false, this business of new proof systems, what I wanted to open questions for you.
1: So my open questions are very uh,
0: okay, technical,
1: uh, reasonably technical. So that at a philosophical level, certainly I would be interested in understanding uh, the, in uh, the understanding how one could get a better intuitive feeling for statements which are unproven in which direction do you try to prove them? If I don't know whether it's true or false. You know, so good mathematicians can smell you know, what, what what should be the thing that they try proving. Of course, not everybody hits on the right thing. And so you start off in one way and trying to prove it's true. And if you struggle long enough, then you say, okay, maybe it's false and you try to prove it's false. But maybe there are some indicators. Are there
0: other instances of U-turns like theorems that were believed to be obviously false. Nobody bothered proving them, but they turned out to be true and so on.
1: So basically we're saying, are there instances of theorems which are surprising? Yes. Yes. There have been such theorems. Mm-hmm. For instance, in, in computational complexity theory, one of the very surprising theorems when it first came, which was sometime in the 90s, was that uh, polynomial space is can be characterized by what are called in, interactive proofs. So it's, that's that again led to a new notion of proof, a proof which is not written down by a person and then verified by somebody else, but the proof is established through interaction between the prover and the verifier with a lot of randomness thrown in and Mm -hmm. some probability of error. It was a very new notion of proof. But even this notion of proof, it was widely believed is weaker than the standard notion. And then eventually it was shown that this is as powerful as what can be done by Turing. So that was a big surprise. that P space equals IP. And there have been a few other such examples. So uh, sharpening our intuition so uh, so that we are able to better judge what is likely to be true. As a first step to actually going ahead and proving it, that is that certainly is fits in with this theme of making the not so obvious obvious, moving towards making uh, hidden things explicit.
0: What's the future uh, kit? What's the future of our intuition? Because mm-hmm. a lot of this, whether these are mathematicians or otherwise, I think you do bring a certain kind of intuition to the table. Um, is that evolving? Is intuition evolving? Where is that headed?
3: Certainly, some of our higher-level intuitions evolve. Mm-hmm. Here's the question. Is it, is there this common ability to detect elegance that lies behind, say, syntax and science, behind maths and, and natural science? Is that something that we're all born with, in which case it looks as likely to change as syntax is?
0: And even when you say common, it doesn't mean something that everybody has because in, in, even intuition gets trained, right? In, Mina's intuition on a bunch of things is, I I wouldn't share that at all.
3: It might be like the common ability to walk, right? Right. We were born with it. Some of us walk better than others. Some of us walk different than others. Um, for sure. Um, but, I mean, it's not even clear to me that it is this, exactly the same ability. We, we've been using some of the same words Simplicity and, and elegance and, and niceness and and so forth. Loveliness is something we use in philosophy.
0: <laughs>
3: um, is it the same thing, or have we just got some same cultural idea we're imposing onto really quite different things? I don't know. And and what troubles me is that whether or not it's the same thing, why on earth would it work? I understand why it would work in the syntax case. If we all have the same ability to detect elegance, then we might be led to the same sort of grammatical inferences that will help us coordinate, that will help us communicate. I don't get how it would work in, the elegance, science in either maths del- or science. right? Um, I don't get why it would work. So is it the same thing? Is it the same c- capability of detecting elegance? And how much can we rely on it?
2: I think I, get in, I would agree with uh, Kit in this matter because in this conversation what comes out is that uh, mathematical reasoning need not be human reasoning. So there's some something different. There's the criteria different. Uh, although we are on surface talking about uh, elegance and simplicity, as Kit rightly pointed out, your uh, goal is not really checking with the human mathematical reasoning. I think that's the feeling I got from Mina's <laughs> exposition that is a human child going to uh, solve a mathematical problem this way and therefore my proof structure should match his or hers? That's not a consideration for the mathematician. Right. So I think that's where the we draw line.
0: That's why you do mathematics, which is... <laughs> <laughs> I
3: sneakily think that Mina's not just doing that, though. I think she's doing this exp- explanatory work, which is in addition to the simply proving that it's true. So I think that she might be doing more than what mathematicians normally take themselves to be doing. And in in that extra bit, she's doing something... She might be doing the same as the rest of us, right? Sure, deductive, straightforward, computational or non-computational reasoning, but there's this extra explanatory work. There isn't, And that's where the elegance comes in. So maybe, maybe actually we are more similar than we think, but that's yet to be determined.
0: You, you're saying elegance comes in only at the level of explanation?
3: Well, so... No. if you want if you just want a proof it doesn't need to be elegant it only needs to be simple in the in this in the formal sense right but if you want but, but you want more than that right you want an elegant proof yes and I, my claim is well maybe when you want an elegant proof what you want is explanation and that's maybe the, at that point you're using that common faculty of detecting elegance and doing something which i think that's the process of going
0: back and working on the proof again and chiseling it yeah but anyway it yeah, is exactly. what it is <laughs> Thanks. That's a good note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank it's you, been great.
3: Yeah, it's been fun. Thank you.